This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Belinda Carlisle, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Shh. Quiet, please. Hey, hey, folks, diggers, friends, family. Countrymen. Countrymen? Countrymen. Uh, Country people. Lend, lend us your ears. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. COVID-19 edition. <laughs> oh. uh, what do you think about that, Shelly? You happy? You having a good time in uh, quarantine? Somewhat, yeah. I mean, some <laughs> of it's good. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it started out bad and, yeah, and now it's yeah. better. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I am, uh, you know, doing things that I hadn't had time to do before. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Now, there yeah. have been some... Uh, negative effects of the quarantine uh, here in the Bay Area, uh, one mm -hmm. of which is that we have not been able to see each other uh, because we are uh, social distancing, uh, yeah. which is the proper attitude to take if you want to protect others. Yeah. Yourself, right. <laughs> right. Right. And so uh, if you guys are uh, wondering why the audio quality on Shelly's side is not as good as it usually is, it's because we are doing this remotely over Zoom. And, right. Uh, you are using um, you know, what appears to be a tape and wire and some, <laughs> some tin cans. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, so we got some tin cans going on. Uh, yeah. Here, but so it's a little tinny. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Yeah. Um, but other than that, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm doing, I'm fine. Um, I'm, sad that i don't get to play music live you know with people with my friends anymore um don't and say that anymore. we don't i don't say well, anymore. For now. i was hoping you weren't going to say anymore but i know for now mean. for yes. now yeah. but i'm accommodating that by practicing the piano taking zoom lessons online and also my next project is to learn how to record a track using a digital audio an audio interface yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So far, I've only made recordings, you know, on my iPhone. So I'm I'm taking a step up. So anyway, yeah, trying to you know continue learning new things and working a little still for the library and uh, yeah. So how about you? Oh, um, you know, working away. Uh, to be honest with you, I feel that uh, this is. <laughs> I hate to say it, but uh, this has been nothing but good for us. Uh, the fact is, is uh, podcasting is like the only content machine that is still running. Right. Uh, you, you can't yeah. go and make television shows or movies. So whatever you had in the can prior to, you know, March, you're, that's what you got. 
Right. Uh, you know, and uh, music is uh, difficult uh, to achieve uh, remotely, uh, even though people do do it. And we've gotten some fun little musical tributes uh, out there. In fact, I just watched one with Steve Winwood this morning doing uh, Give Me Some Lovin', uh, which was kind of cool and uh, and and that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know about, you know, actually going in and making albums. Uh, and obviously, you know, there is nothing on the road. So, right. yeah, it's all about podcasting. Uh, and yeah. I guess a, a podcast network about uh, music uh, seems to be in demand. Uh, I will tell you and everybody that um, uh, we keep close eye on the numbers and podcasting is down about 20% since hmm. the beginning of the COVID uh, response. And the reason that is, is because podcasting is a very mobile type of activity. So a lot of people listen uh in the commute and uh when there is no commute yeah uh, that's true yeah now the interesting fact for us is that we were down oh i think we were flat uh in march and then we were up about five percent in april and we are over 20 percent here in may so Mm -hmm. we've also drilling down deeper into the numbers have discovered that um the podcast subject matters that have taken the biggest hits are, you know, obviously travel, sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, those uh, aren't uh, doing very well. But also like true crime, which has always been a very big uh, subject matter for podcasting, uh-huh. is also uh, on the decline. Huh. Uh, and, you know, music-oriented uh, podcasts like ours are up. Oh. That's very interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I know. I, I've listened to podcasts before, like you said, you know, on car trips or walking, you know, to Metro or whatever. So it's true. There's not as many opportunities to plug a podcast in now, but that's interesting that music is up. Yeah, it's okay. uh, it's really great. It's great for all of us. It's great for all of us to see out there, you know? Yeah. So one of the other things I was thinking, you know, that people might want to know about during the COVID-19 shelter in place, which a lot of people are still doing, is for me to tell you about an attractive offer from Adam and Eve. Oh, I like attractive offers. Yeah. So, you know, like we were saying, you know, a lot of people are still home. They're anxious. They're bored. Um, not only listening to music podcasts, but, you know, you might want to have some fun with your intimate partner during these times if you're holed up with hold up <laughs> with somebody else. And <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Adam everything and everything is a sexual innuendo when you start going down one. the Adam and Eve uh, route. <laughs> I know. This is so funny. AdamandEve.com is here for you and your intimate partner. You could go to their website and select an item for 50% off and receive 10 free gifts plus free shipping with my special code, R-O-C-K-L-I-B, for Rock and Roll Librarian. Get it, everybody? That's R-O-C-K-L-I-B at adamandeve.com. Do some shopping and spice up your quarantine life. Um, that sounds like fun. So adamandeve.com. And what's the code? The checkout code again is? R-O-C-K-L-I-B. I feel like I'm starting a uh, Rock live. John, Rock John live. Mellencamp song. <laughs> R-O-C-K in the L-I-B. 
All right. There you go. R-S-U-K-L-I-B at adamandeve.com. All right, folks. Go to adamandeve.com. Use the checkout code R-O-C-K-L-I-B for rock lib, rock lib, rock librarian. Uh, And uh, that'll get you all kinds of free gifts uh, that you can use uh, in your spare time. That's right. Okay. Many of us have spare time. Okay. What do we got on tap today? Well, before we go on tap, uh, I wanted to make a clarification that a fan and friend has sent to me about the Doors podcast, that it sounded like we were implying that Backdoor Man was written by the Doors, when in fact it was written by Willie Dixon, very famous blues guy on his in his own right and, and who, t- uh, who told us about this uh my friend mark crossley who uh i used to jam with and also who is now a, a, a fan of the rock and roll librarian meaning me he also published a book a few years ago that he thought our music lovers might like to check out it's called some way out of here and it's about his own experience as a teen during the late 60s and it's full of uh, references and information about late 60s rock music. And it's under his, uh, I guess, his nom de plume, Mark Lauden, L-A-U-D-E-N. So if anybody wants to check that book out, give it a try. Okay. For our fans. All right. And so, but the, the concern was that, um, did we suggest that Backdoor Man was written by the Doors and not Willie Dixon? I don't well, know. Well, exactly. I, I listened to it again and we didn't, kind of clarify who it was written by and it may have sound like we were implying it was written by the doors so but anyway okay. shout out to willie, willie dixon, dixon. Right. backdoor right. man okay right right okay but it's interesting the concern was about who wrote it uh, as opposed to uh, what the subject matter might be about right which i think we right. did delve into yeah, we did. We did. The back door. <laughs> the different references. Speaking of adamandeve.com. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah. There you go. You can lead a horse to water and <laughs> you can get Shelly to drink. <laughs> I'm making, making connections here. Anyway, today, right. yes. speaking of funky and sexual, we're here no. to talk about Etta James. Yes. Uh, Etta James wrote an autobiography uh, in 1995, called Rage to Survive, the Etta James story. And in fact, this was recommended by another Listener? fan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chicago Blues History on Twitter. I, I don't know the person's name, but it's, uh, Chicago Blues History puts out a lot of very interesting factoids about blues on Twitter and um, referenced this book. And I commented, wait, Etta James wrote a memoir? I didn't know that. And so he's the one that uh, clued me in to this book. Yeah. Awesome. Fan interaction. That's what we love around here. That's right. So it's by Etta James and David Ritz and was published in 95. So yeah, the reason it's called Rage to Survive is that um, she feels like she was raging throughout her whole life. And you can hear it in her music. When she looks back at her life and her trajectory, she looks back and says it happened so fast. 
but um, it all started in Los Angeles. But let's listen to a song that she did in concert to kind of hear her style. Um, this is Baby, What You Want Me To Do, written by Jimmy Reed. Right. And when, at the time it came out, it hit big. And she wrote it with church on her mind because it has a gospel spirit. So this is a, an Etta James uh, song that she's singing in concert, I think, in Nashville. All right. Let's do Baby, What You Want Me To Do by Jimmy Reed, as sung <laughs> by Etta James. <laughs> Well, boy, can that girl growl, huh? Yeah. She's got some great, it's called vocal fry. I've learned yeah. that. Yeah, growling. vocal fry. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, from 1963. Uh, uh, let's see, Rocks the House. Etta James Rocks the House is the album. Yeah. That's her kind of most, well, I don't know. That's what the style that I associate with her. But she has a lot of different styles. So we're going to hear those as we go through the podcast. Um, she was born in 1938, and her given name at birth and in childhood was Jamesetta Hawkins. So you can see what's going to happen to her name later, but that was her name. Jamesetta was her first name. She mm -hmm. had two mothers, two childhoods, and different lives in different cities. Her okay. first mother... Stop, yeah. stop, stop you there. Two lives, two mothers? Well, yeah. A lot of people have two mothers, well, yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 One biological, <laughs> then the one who raises you. That's right. Oh. So her biological mother, Dorothy, actually gave birth to her when she was the ripe old age of 14. She was beautiful, hip girl, voluptuous, well-dressed, and she loved jazz. And James Etta always remembers her as being elusive and glamorous. And then there was a mystery about who her father was. Do you know who Etta has always thought her father was, Christian? Okay, no. 1938. Hmm. 1938. Um, uh, she was born in Los Angeles. Uh, You're never going to get it. I'm never going to get it. Go ahead. No. Okay. Minnesota Fats. What? Remember him? What? Remember him from that, yeah, that movie yeah, yeah. that Jackie Gleason was in? He was a yeah, white yeah, pool yeah. shark. Yep. who frequented South Central L.A. in 1936 and 37. So she just got this from, you know, like rumors and innuendos. Her mother never told her uh, who her father was and may not have known, actually. Um, but she was raised by a middle-class couple in the rooming house where Dorothy, her mother, lived with the baby. So uh, at a certain point, they could tell that she couldn't handle the baby at age 14 and 15. So she handed her baby over to Lulu and Jesse Rogers, who were happy to have her and raised her in a stable home. They had some money, they owned their house, and they, you know, were uh, an older couple, probably in their 30s or 40s. 
And Dorothy flitted in and out of Etta's life, causing a lot of havoc when she came back. Mm. Um, at church, this is a common theme with our uh, African-American musicians. She was inspired at age five by the famous choir master, Professor James Earl Hines, who's not to be confused with the famous jazz piano player, Earl Hines. This man, James Earl Hines, sang like an angel. He was the first and best model of soul singing and also the inspiration for a generation of gospel talent who followed. And she learned this term, which she calls vocal fire, as opposed to vocal fry, vocal fire from him and wanted to sing the same way. I think she really got that uh, eventually, Uh, the vocal fire. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like Uh, that term, vocal fire. So like many of our black soul R&B and blues singers, you know, like Aretha, Sam Cooke, uh, now I'm failing, Tina Turner, I'm sure. And she was nurtured by church support and praise. Oh, Booker T, he was definitely nurtured by the church. And she was given uh, the solo parts and a lot of the choir from the time she was five for several years. And the choir was broadcast on local radio and the word got out about this little girl. But the problem was that at 10, her adoptive father decided that she should be in a richer church. And he took her out of the church where she was so nurtured and loved and felt so Mm. comfortable and put her in another church. And unfortunately, that kind of traumatized her. And she had a hard time singing in front of people at that time after that, because she felt like she'd been ripped from this very nurturing environment to go somewhere else and decided she didn't want to sing in church anymore. But on the streets of South Central LA, there was a lot of singing going on, not just in the church, but out on yeah, the do, streets. Do wop groups. And yeah, like a that, lot yeah. of the boys, the teen boys were really, really great. And she jumped in and kept up with them and kept singing. But eventually, her adoptive mother passed away in a series after a series of strokes. And Dorothy, her biological mother, swooped in and took Etta out of L.A. and brought her up to San Francisco when she was about, I think, about 10 years old. And, of course, then dropped her off, James Etta off, with uh, her brother and his wife, the brother's name Frank. He was to become a very stable fatherly influence in her life. And it was here in San Francisco in the Fillmore district that she started. It's like she says she left her schoolgirl, innocent church choir persona in Los Angeles and started running around in the streets in the Fillmore and uh, kind of joining these young bands and stuff like that. Yeah. And she did join a girl group, or she created a girl group with these two girlfriends who were Creole. And so they called themselves the Creolettes, which is <laughs> a catchy course. name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they were very, you know, influenced by the doo-wop and learned uh, all the vocal, tight vocal harmonies and developed a tight three-way blend imitating the black doo-wop groups of the time, the Spaniels, the Swallows, the Chords, and the Moonglows. But also the doo-woppers like the four freshmen. Remember how Brian Wilson was so into the four freshmen oh, who yeah. were the uh, white doo-woppers? Yep. And they yep. got to be very popular group around town. And uh, 
there was a song out at the time by Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, which was called Work With Me Annie. And uh, as she calls it, a nasty jam for grinding. (laughs) I love that phrase, a nasty jam for grinding. And so apparently these answer songs were big back then. So she wrote the song, Roll With Me Henry, which was an answer song to Work With Me Annie. And she calls it a a pushy little jive-ass reply to Hank. So let's play her first recorded song, Roll With Me Henry. Okay, Roll With Me Henry. Hey, baby! What I have to do to make you love me too? Got to roll with me, Henry. All right, baby. Roll with me, Henry. Roll me, baby. Roll with me, Henry. Give me whole time. Roll with me, Henry. Don't change my mind. Roll with me, Henry. All right. Yeah, so they were they were playing this song uh, around town, basically. She didn't have any kind of contract or, or anything yet when she mm-hmm. first wrote and started singing the song. But what happened was Abby, who was one of the Creolettes, she was older than the other girls by about 10 years. She was in her 20s. And she was a groupie. She used to follow bands around town. So she slipped into the Primaline Ballroom in San Francisco to catch the Johnny Otis show. Now, Johnny Otis was a Greek man, but everybody thought he was Black because he totally immersed himself in the Black culture. He was a band leader. He put together jazz and R&B reviews. He played vibes piano. And on his reviews, he featured different singers so he would take a you know group of musicians on the road and then feature people to play. Yeah, kind yeah, of common so at that time. When Abby went to see his show, she told him about Etta James and the Peaches. I mean, and the Creolettes. They later they were called the Peaches. And Abby called Etta James Etta at home and told them that Johnny wanted the other girls to come down to a hotel. So he paid at 2 a.m. He sent them a cab to get them to a hotel so he could hear them all sing. And Etta, or James Etta, uh, felt very pressured. So she didn't want to sing in front of him. So she sat in the bathroom to sing for him so people weren't looking at her with the girls in the hallway. And when they were done, Johnny wanted to take Etta on the road to L.A. right away to perform and make recordings. She was only 14 So she forged a note from her mom, who was in jail, and left her childhood behind. So at 14, she left her childhood behind, I just realized, just like her mother did when she bore James Etta. She had a baby, yeah. And he also had discovered her her friend that she roamed around the Fillmore with, who I don't remember what her given name was, but later became Sugar Pie DeSanto. He was the one that gave Sugar Pie that name. And she's very big in the... San Francisco blues and R&B world. And he changed the name of the Creolettes to the Peaches. So he flipped Etta's around from James Etta to Etta James. 
And that was his kind of special thing he did was rename people with names that that would be better in show business. He also had a radio show. And I thought we could play the theme song from his radio show because um, when I met my husband, he introduced me to Johnny Otis and Mm. we saw him once in... uh, Did you? Yeah, once in San Francisco. So let's Uh, play Johnny Otis's radio theme show. Ionis uh, Alexandres uh, Veliotis. Ah, yeah. Veliotis, that's where the Otis comes from. Yeah. Yeah, so let's play Johnny Otis's theme song. Johnny Otis, Johnny Otis. I'm not sure what the program's about uh, from that snip. I I don't get it. (laughs) Okay. Pretty pretty simplified stuff for back in the day, uh, you know. Yeah. Most common denominator, (laughs) television, you know, all that. All right, all right. So one of the first things he did was he took uh, (laughs) Etta to Hollywood to record Roll With Me Henry, which was her first hit. And by the following Friday, it had sold 500 copies out of a record store that Johnny owned on Western Avenue in L.A. And this is what launched her career. And he launched her career. But uh, in a time-honored story that uh, we've heard over and over again, uh, Georgia Gibbs, a white girl, did a version of her song called Dance With Me Henry, which sold a million copies. Uh, (laughs) So Etta had made one that sold 500, well, probably more than that. But the whitewashed version by Georgia Gibbs, which wasn't so kind of nasty, uh, because Roll With Me Henry would connote a not just dancing, but, but screwing, whereas Georgia Gibbs was, you know, very specific to talk Strict, about Strictly dance. dancing, just dancing, strictly and dancing, only dancing. And not touching. There'll be none of that, right. Yeah. 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 And that That's really made You'll her... need adamandeve.com, uh, and that is uh, R-O-C-K-L-I-B. Yes. <laughs> While you're listening to Roll With Me, Henry. So, I, I know, it kind of works. Um, as she has, says, the history of Black music is filled with tales of exploitation. Uh, at the time, she was signed to a small record label named Modern Record, owned by these uh, brothers or this family called the Biharis. And the next recording that she made on that label was called Good Rockin' Daddy. And she calls this a primitive example of strong early rock. It raced up in the charts in the fall of 55, and that was her second big success. So let's have a listen to Good Rockin' Daddy. All right. That's, yeah, right there at the beginning of rock and roll. You can hear a little bit of that. That's right. Yeah. 
So in addition to singing, uh, she was writing. The company paid her a salary. But if they liked the song, they might cough up $25 to $30 for publishing. So, you know, like so many other artists we've talked about, uh, didn't get Ex- the song exploitation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so she traveled with Johnny Otis's review, um, only making about $30 a night. And people started implying that since she was the star, she should be making more. So she left Otis, Johnny Otis, and um, her new agent sent her on the road with the Peaches, which used to be the Creolettes, and her mother, Dorothy, as chaperone in a new 1955 Cadillac. They went to Dallas, where she met Ike and Tina Turner at a motel. That's the first time she met Ike and Tina. And Ike was already bossing Tina around. Like, she had to stay in her room the whole time in the motel. She saw Tina as a caged bird that wanted to fly, but was too afraid of the work and of Ike. And later on, she would have a lot in common with women regarding men controlling men. But at this point, they were both still giddy and excited about being in show business. Um, The next mentor she met was Johnny Guitar Watson. Now, in 1955, he was the most advanced musician of that era. And in fact, later on, about a decade later, Hendrix said that he copped from Johnny Watson. John Watson. Um, he was a piano player, guitar player, singer, songwriter, sax player, and a filthy, funking, great showman. So she went on the road with him and for quite a while. And the tour was called the Top Ten Tour Bus. And they went all throughout the country. Uh, at one point, she met Elvis Presley, because she shared a bill with Elvis Presley in a big club outside Memphis, and he was super cool and extra respectful. Mm. Yes. It was around this time she starts working on her image, which we associate with Etta James. Uh, Her image was mostly created by gay boys, as she said, and this was kind of the first in her interactions with many gay men and women and also transsexuals and transvestites. So she didn't want to look innocent. She wanted to look bad. She dyed her hair blonde, but kept the brows dark, the cat eyes, the cup dresses, which were super Mm -hmm. tight and -hmm. came halfway up the thigh, low cut, etc. She wanted to be glamorous. I wanted to be as exotic as a cotton club chorus girl and I wanted to be obvious as the most flamboyant hooker on the street. So she went into this look with great consciousness. She wanted to look dirty and, you know, sexy and kind of slutty. That was her thing. She met so many interesting people around this time. Uh, She actually met Billie Holiday once, I guess, when Billie was uh, really deep into her own heroin addiction. And she hung out with little Richard, who she called uh, King. Well, he called himself King Richard, but he was a real sweetheart. And she said he was brave to be so individual, a king and a queen at the same time. Without him, him. there would be an RIP. There would be no Michael Jackson or Prince. But she gave him a hard time for wanting to be called king. No, No, I'm John. Right. Yeah. She said he needed to be adored and couldn't get enough love and attention. 
And and also when they were on tour, uh, she said there was some crazy orgies on the tour. And she was, uh, even though she was like, I don't know, under 18, she was on the tour being a chaperone also to the Shirelles, who were even younger than her. And they followed along after Bo Diddley, who liked to make home movies of the orgies. Um, so they, yeah, they like, he would, he would creep around this hotel suite and open a door to even, you know, like all these people having sex with each other and film them and look, watch them later. And so she and the Shirelles followed along behind after him to see uh, some of the things that he was taking uh, movies of. At one point, she had to um, make the Shirelles go away so that she could watch on her own because, after all, she was supposed to be the chaperone. Yeah, about that, adamandeve.com. Oh. That was uh, R-O-C-K-L-I-B <laughs> checkout. Okay, go on. <laughs> and you might, and you might, maybe they have some of Bo Diddley's home movies for sale. <laughs> I think I that's in whatever the, happened to those. I think that's in the free package. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> One of your freebies. <laughs> <laughs> she also met her boyfriend at the time, Harvey Fuqua of the Moon Glows. The Moon Glows were managed by Alan Freed. I did not know that. Well, I don't know much about the Moon Glows. And later on, Marvin Gaye became one of uh, their singers for a brief amount of time. So the next song that we're going to listen to would be uh, a song that she played in clubs, and you could hear her on radio singing this song. It was a nitty-gritty, hard-rocking R&B with gumbo flavor, and she wrote and delivered it in a heavy little Richard bag. So let's listen to that. It does sound a lot like Little Richard. Okay, let's get to Tough Lover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I've got a lover that moves my soul. He show a nose how to rock and roll. Cause he's a tough lover, yeah, yeah. He's a tough lover, Woo! He's a tough lover, yeah, yeah. Tough lover, uh-huh. When he kisses me, I get a thrill. But when he does that wiggle, I can't keep still. Cause he's a tough lover, yeah, yeah. He's a tough lover, Woo! She's definitely channeling Little Richard. There. She's even got the whoop. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's up there. That's, a, that's, that's up fun. There. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to dance to that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And somebody in the Moon Glows at the time told her, if you want to be a big star, you have to get on chess. The chess brothers are some smart Jews who know how to sell records. <laughs> that's what Bobby Lester said. That's not my quote. So, but yes, yes, they they were uh, definitely uh, and to be on yeah. chess uh, as a black artist. Um, you know, you you were probably going to go somewhere. That's right. And so that's our next goal here is to get her to chess. One of the ways she got to chess was she got a new manager, and he was to become a very important figure in her life. She was on Kent Record from fifty five to fifty nine. So this is after that. Right. But this is her manager, John Lewis. He became her mentor, her manager, and, quote, laced her boots to real life. From 1957 until 1964, when he went to prison, he managed the unmanageable Etta James as well as anyone. 
And uh, even though he and many of her father figures in her life screwed her out of a lot of money, they still took care of her. So he cared about her. And he was, you know, like I said, very important in her life. One of the next people that she meets during this time is Sam Cooke, who was at the time the lead singer of the Soul Stirrers, a gospel group. If you haven't heard Sam Cooke, that's one of my favorite records is a him singing with the Soul Stirrers. Sounds a lot like his secular music, but it's just beautiful. Their, their harmonies and the you know, different members of the Soulsters are also soloists um, mm-hmm. on the album, but I don't remember the name of the album. But anyway, the Soulsters. And he was the epitome of mellow, she said. No one made the transition from church to secular singing any smoother than Sam. He was praying every time he went on stage. He tried to school her in mellow, but she was too hot-headed. And he had her back a lot of the time while she was screaming and trying to get her pay from club owners. He would just go in and smooth talk them and get, you know, his and hers together. But they were just buddies. Uh, they, they never got uh, involved romantically. And Jackie Wilson became another person who defended her and helped her in business and music. And When she first met him, he was enjoying his first hits. He was surely the greatest showman of the day, a great singer and acrobatic dancer, and she spent a lot of time with him. Mm. It was the Jackie Wilson show on and off the stage, but she didn't mind. It's funny that these guys, you know, Jackie Wilson and Little Richard were so full of themselves, but so kind to her that she didn't mind that they were very, really egotistical because she could just kid with them about that and they would still be you know her friend and as she says Jackie Wilson loved being Jackie Wilson (laughs) like when she went to visit him he would play only his own albums and talk only about himself but since it was so much fun to talk about Jackie Wilson and be with Jackie Wilson that was fine with her so one of the things he did for her to get her to chess records was when a club owner wasn't going to pay her. Jackie paid her out of his own pocket for a club date, which got her enough money to go to Chicago where she would try to meet the Chess Brothers. So she and uh, one of the Peaches went to Chicago and they were broke and freezing and couldn't get in to see him. But somebody helped them nullify their previous record deal and got her in to see Leonard chess now leonard loved etta and it was she came at just the right time because he was on what etta calls a girl hunt because he didn't have enough women singers on his label at the time Uh yeah so he signed her right away and one thing that was interesting that he said about leonard chess was that through his bar and liquor business, he was exposed to the Chicago blues, and he just wanted to record them. Since he didn't know that much about music, he left them alone without frills. And there was so much raw talent hanging around the Chicago ghetto, it was hard to make a musical mistake. There was Memphis Slim, Howlin' Wolf, and Willie Dixon, just to name a few. So he put her on staff as a singer and songwriter and paid her room and board and kept her from starving. She says, yeah, he ripped off copyrights, but she liked him. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the first uh, thing that he did was he loved triangle songs and he wanted her to sing a lot of triangle songs about love triangles. And she was always the loser in these songs. And the first of them was All I Could Do Was Cry, which was put out in 1960. She's sitting in a church while watching her man marry someone else. She sang it like she meant it, but at the time she was play acting. In the future, she'd get to live the very song she was singing. It would uh, go on to become a big hit, but she didn't see any money from the sales, of course. Let's hear All I Could Do Was Cry. All right. I heard church bells Yeah, that, that's a lot more uh, tame than the previous songs we've been hearing. Yeah, nice, uh, sweet, and you say it's a triangle song. So yeah, she yeah. She loses her lover to another woman. That's right. And she has to sit in the chapel. Darn. So uh, she went on the road with Harvey Fuqua and in the, of the Moon Glows, and on the tour was a young Marvin Gaye. This was his first big break was to go on this tour. He was 21. And he was, as I said, he became one of the new moon glows. But at the time, he was shy and women scared him, which is kind of funny because he's such a sex object later. Um, they were about the same age and they became friends. Well, so, sometimes you have to grow into that. Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> and He definitely he was, did. He was so shy, but one of the girls who was very aggressive on the tour got him into bed and later complained that he wouldn't give her head. Speaking of adamandeve.com. And at the R-O-C-K-L-I-B. Time, <laughs> and learn how to do that. At, at the time, she, as she said, this was a complaint many of us could legitimately level against the men. <laughs> that's what, that's what Ella, Etta said. I'm sure there's and, an instructional video that you could find. But, yeah, uh, but the funny video. thing about that is I read uh, his second wife, Janice Gay's biography about, I can't remember the name of it, but she says, yeah, that he was her first lover and he would not go down on her during their first sexual experiences. And she had to kind of grow to insist on that. So I thought that was kind of humorous. Like Marvin Gaye, I'm going to write a, a book called Marvin Gaye Won't Go Down. <laughs> and no, anyway. No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Harvey Fuqua was the one who got her into the standards, the jazz standards, when she was 22. He got out a piano book and started playing the standards on the piano, and she got excited because she wanted to escape into a world of glamour which was the music that her mother loved. So she's always coming back to jazz standards that she relates to her mother. She's trying to who, impress her mother. Yeah, impress to, her yeah. mother. And her mother was not into the blues. She thought they were nasty and dirty. So she never came to listen to Etta mm. uh, sing. 
which was sad. And Chess heard that they were working on the standards and rushed Etta to, into the studio. And the song, At Last, was the first one that people responded to and that people still love and still had asked her for all throughout her career. So let's listen to At Last. That song just grown over the years. Yeah, I think it had a resurgence when uh, didn't Beyonce play her in the um, yeah Cadillac in Records. a movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, she sang it uh, most famously at the Obama uh, inauguration. That was the first dance uh, that uh, Obama and Michelle yeah at the yeah. inauguration ball um, quite appropriately. Perfect song choice for that yeah yeah and uh, apparently leonard chess was delighted with her success and he called this her first crossover he had crossed over at crossed over she still didn't know what it meant except that maybe more white people were listening to her so i guess that's what it meant <laughs> the standards were a natural fit for her as she said she could be herself and put her own gospel or blues feeling on the songs and meanwhile, Harvey left her in Chess for Detroit and took Marvin with him. And this is when Harvey got together with Gwen Gordy and started Harvey Records, which later or at some point became Motown. Is that correct? I have here written here, Anna and Harvey Records were merged to become Motown. So at any rate, there was a lot of crossover between Motown and Chess. So Motown and Chess, what do you know about Motown and Chess and how they interacted and became Motown? There's a lot of stuff about Anna and Gwen Gordy and their own little, you know, mini offshoot labels from Motown. Well, uh, I I mean, you know, two completely different um, setups. Uh, You know, Chess was out of Chicago in a uh, very blues, uh, you know, they basically took the the guys uh, who left the Delta and came up uh, through the Great Migration into uh, Chicago and turned them into um, stars. And they were always interested in the authentic, um, you know, bluesy side of things, uh, much more raw. Uh, Motown, of course, famously put together by Barry Gordy, who'd worked for the Ford uh, company, you know, looked at this as two things. One, he created an assembly uh, line uh, for these artists um, uh, with a great band, uh, including uh, uh, writers. Et- etiquette classes for the performers. And his interest was, you know, trying to put black music more into a white audience um, and mm-hmm. did it did a fantastic job of, of accomplishing that. So two 
you know, two very different uh, mission statements, I might say. Right, right, definitely. All right. So in the meantime, she's still singing her rockin' stuff. She didn't she didn't end with the standards. And she wrote a song called Something's Got a Hold on Me with Church on Her Mind. It has a gospel spirit, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later. People will probably recognize the beginning of this song as something they've heard uh, more recently in other music. So this is called Something's Got a Hold on Me. Sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. Yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. No, no. Yeah. I just want to tell you right now that uh, I believe, I really do believe that. Something's got a hold on me, yeah Oh, it must be the Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, this is another one of those pieces where, you know, at the time, really great on R&B uh, radio. This is very early 60s. But as time goes on, this song becomes more and more important. And as we'll see uh, here at the end, and, and, you know, it's still incredibly important. Right, right, right. So did you know that uh, Etta James it was a, a Muslim for a while? John Lewis, her, her manager, introduced her in, in Atlanta to the Black Muslim Brotherhood. Says so she called herself a Muslim for 10 years and took it seriously, but she fell off the wagon frequently because she loved pork. And uh, <laughs> her Muslim name was James Etta X. And in New York City, in fact, in 1960, Fidel Castro was living in the same motel or hotel as her, had the whole top six floors and raised chickens for food in the hotel because he was afraid of being poisoned. She also says that she may have had a hand in converting Cassius Clay into Muhammad Ali. He came to see her perform when he was just 19, and she did her job, which they're supposed to proselytize. She talked up the Brotherhood and gave him pamphlets, and soon after that, he became Muhammad Ali. Wow. So, I didn't know yeah. that. That's yeah, that's really a good claim to fame. Yeah. Around this time, she became, of course, addicted to heroin. Um, uh, lifelong pursuit for her. Yeah. Her cockiness was what got her into trouble with heroin. She didn't want to hear other people tell her what to do, as many young people don't. She had to try it herself. So it doesn't do any good to see people suffering around you. It's like, uh, I have to do this myself. And it hit her hard and became her drug of choice. She loved it. It took her where she wanted to go in a hurry. And also it helped her lose weight because she'd had a, a, yeah, really, a lifelong <laughs> problem with, with weight. And she was, that was pretty cool for her because she didn't have to try. It was getting a hold on her. And Leonard Chess helped her out of this predicament frequently over her life. At this time, he sent her to a convalescent home where a doctor helped her withdraw. And also she was having seizures because she'd gotten tetanus from a dirty needle. Uh, and he kept trying to 
help her stay clean and would have to go back into this with her over and over, over time. She talks about knowing Aretha and how they had a lot in common. They both started out in church and now we're singing for the world. And they also shared the experience of being drawn to crafty men who weren't in love with them, but were in love with who they were. Right. But they allowed themselves to be used. I can't remember Aretha's husband's name who controlled her for several years. Um, uh, that's all right. People not important. That Keep up. the move. Keep yeah. the story moving. Yeah. 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 And they pretended to be protective, but saw women as property. And she named some of the female blues and R&B singers who were Black divas who chose the wrong men, like Billie Holiday, Dinah Washington, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Tina Turner, Aretha Franklin, and her. Why? That, mm-hmm. I mean, she, she doesn't have the answer, but she knows in her case, she had this tough, crusty exterior, but it was inside. She was scared and she wanted somebody to protect her. And so in 1962, at age 24, she got together with the man she only calls the pimp. She doesn't give us his name. But This was the first time she had oral sex and experienced orgasms. And she says, good sex will mix you up. So maybe that's one of the reasons that these women got with these guys, because they they would would have oral sex with her. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, even those people tried to warn her about... You hear that, guys? You can uh, be a bad man as long as you perform good cunnilingus. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, she had a really bad time with this guy, though. He was jealous, violent, and controlling, used her for her money, and eventually he beat her so badly at the Sheraton in New York City that the cops and paramedics were called after she escaped and arrested him and said that she had 24-hour protection from him. But even... The police officers were afraid of this guy, and she had to sneak out of the hospital and hire her own bodyguard just to keep this guy away from her. Around this time, a song came out that she did called Pushover in 1963, and she says now this song was about her because she was a pushover when she got together with this guy. So can I ask a question here? So it's interesting, you know, we talked a little bit about her experience of seeing Ike and Tina together and that that uh, kind of uh, clued her into, uh, you know, a caged bird, but yet she succumbs to the same situation. Yes, she does. And not, not just this time either. So my interpretation is She was abandoned by a birth father she never knew. She was abandoned by her mother. And she Mm -hmm. keeps reaching out to find men who will take care of her and nurture her. And the stronger the man, the better. And I suppose if you see a guy that's controlling, you could equate that with strength, even though we all know that's not true, that you can be strong and still be loving and equal. So that's a pattern for her which luckily it seems like she finally got out of, as does Aretha, I believe. Yeah, she did. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's, uh, let's play Pushover. All right. So you told all the boys that you were going to 
Pushover, yeah. Are you so a pushover? One, no, not me. No? Well, I mean, not with men. No. I am with my no. kids and stuff, yeah. <laughs> They're men. Yeah. Little men. men. No, not, not, in, not in my personal relationships. That's never happened to yeah. me. Um, one of the re- ways she kind of solves this problem is, well, Marvin Gaye is the one that gave her the idea um, he had married Anna Gordy, who was 17 years his senior. And I don't know if people know that, but um, she was quite a bit older than him. And she was his protection. She was beautiful and smart, and she helped him with his career. So this gives Etta the idea to secure her own protection from the pimp. She hooks up with a gangster, 40 years her senior, named Red Dillard. and. Mm-hmm. She liked him, actually. He wasn't mean to her, but he was a mobster and he did protect her. And they really got along for a while, but eventually he went to prison. So she lost that protection. But by that time, the pimp was out of her life. And she also had her stints in uh, both Rikers and Cook County Jail for writing bad checks to buy smack and for using. So she had her time in jail and in prison too. By 1964, she was back in LA when Sam Cooke was killed. And um, she thinks that he was set up. Okay, so the story about Sam Cooke's death is that he tried to rape a woman in a motel room and the motel manager, a woman, killed him. Yeah. Yeah. But she thinks he was becoming more powerful and he wanted to gain control of his own record company and his own publishing. And she thinks that he had gotten involved with the mob, like Frank Sinatra did, to help him in business. And that's why he was killed, because he was trying to uh, wrest control away from the mob. And um, since she saw his body, like she went over to the motel because she worked nearby, right when she heard he was killed, and she saw his body that was quite beaten. And she feels like, Two women couldn't have done that to him, that she thinks that he was beaten up and killed as a mob hit. Mm -hmm. So that is her theory about that. Also that he had behaved very uncharacteristically, according to police reports, by swearing and raging. And she just really felt like she'd never seen him like that. And that was very um, uncharacteristic of him. Though I suppose people can have two personalities. But anyway, I thought that was interesting because uh, they tried to besmirch his name by saying that he had tried to rape a woman. And, you know, her other idea was like, why would Sam Cook rape a woman? I mean, he could have had he any He wouldn't need to, right. I know, but uh, that, uh, that's not really no. answering the, the reason that men rape isn't necessarily to get sex. It's to, you know, be violent and get control over women. She just didn't think that that was really the story. Um, let's see. 
her habit is so bad that basically when she works, she's just making money for heroin. And she's gigging at the clubs of big cities. She hasn't made it big yet, really, in a way that financially supports her. So she played a lot in black clubs of big cities. And in the mid to late 60s, L.A. was filled with them. And so on a small change level, business was good. In uh, Chicago, she cut a record with her friend from San Francisco, who I've just mentioned, Sugar Pie DeSanto. They cut a track called In the Basement, which took her back to the days when they were teens in the Fillmore, cutting up, smearing on lipstick, kissing boys, being bad gang girls with homemade tattoos and floppy jeans. And with happy voices clattering in the background, the record is an all-night-long party with funky music blaring. This came out at the height of Motown, but the song was, quote, black as the ace of spades, unquote. Mm. That's what she calls it, black as the ace of spades. So let's listen to In the Basement. All right, In the Basement. There's that growl working overtime there. At least, uh, the vocal yeah. fry. She, uh, yeah, his sugar pie, too, had that going. Put the, the pedal to the metal on that one. Yeah, that's a fun song. I definitely get the vibe that she's talking about there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. She meets another man that beats her, but I don't think they got married. But he was the father of her first child. And um, they spent some time in Anchorage during which she went to jail. And uh, let's see, in 1967 and 68, started the golden age of soul. The style of black dance music was changing and getting blacker and prouder. Motown was giving way to Muscle Shoals and Memphis. We have Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, like we talked about on the Booker T. Jones episode. That hard driving, heavy, and preaching. And at Muscle Shoals, she recorded the album Tell Mama, which has many fine songs on it. Uh, Chess wanted her to record there after hearing Aretha Franklin's I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. And two songs from this record uh, we're going to play right now. One is, the first one is I'd Rather Go Blind. She fell in love with it, another triangle song, but Mm. she sang it and still did, you know, up until she died at nearly every performance. She related to it because she was blind in her love and personal ways. She wrote it. Um, it had a country and blues feeling of the melody and music, which fell together naturally. And Chess started crying when he first heard it. Aww. So let's play I'd Rather Go Blind, which is a lovely, beautiful record.
Isn't that beautiful? That's just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. It's beautiful. So another song on this album, Tell Mama, was an even bigger hit. And it crossed over to the pop charts and became a classic. Yes. But it was never a favorite of hers. She never liked it very much, nor liked singing it very much. She admires the writer, who was Clarence Carter, and the arrangement, but she didn't like being cast as the Earth Mother to come to for rest and sex. Here's sex again, period. <laughs> I know somebody but who does like that song. I do like that song. Yes, I, that's you do. one of my, you, that's that's, one of my that's best one of your, songs. And, your standards, right, right. Yeah, in performance. That's right. And I guess right. I, don't, my, I don't mind being cast as the Earth Mother. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. As opposed I don't to know. Etta. All right, yeah. let's, let's listen to uh, Tell Mama. That's a triangle song too, yeah. but it's uh, it's a little bit more yeah. I like it's, uh, it's that, like uh, I like it's got that mid '60s, you know, soul, you know, early funk. Uh, oh yeah, of, uh, you know, well, brass and the horns and the yeah. horns are there. Yeah, yeah. that's a real uh, actually um, stacks kind of sound. Yeah, stacks. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, the so speaking sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of stack, stacks, um, yeah. Otis, tax, Otis, sax, sax, saxophone, adamandeve.com. Uh, uh, what was that again? R-O-C-K-L-I-B. Right. Yeah. All right. Otis Redding, not Johnny Otis, but Otis Redding, uh, who she knew, wanted to produce her because he loved her music. But he died in December 1967 before he could. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he died, he said, Etta. We'll do some duets, and I'm going to write some new things. Ain't nothing going to keep me from that session. But he died before he could produce her, so she covered his song, Security, during the second Muscle Shoals session in 1968. She liked the song because uh, she knew that Otis wrote it because he was looking for security, and she was also always looking for security but it kept slipping away from her. And when she recorded this, she couldn't get him out of her mind. His presence was all over the studios. So this song, Security, also made it onto the Tell Mama uh, album, but we're going to play it anyway because I like it. And uh, Otis wrote it. So let's hear it. Security!
Yeah, the, I mean, the, the three songs from that album, all in that mid 60s, mid to late 60s. I think this is 67 when this comes out. Yeah, definitely yeah. Uh, uh, evoking the uh, the stacks call and response uh, horn piece there, and uh, you can yeah. you can kind of feel uh, Otis Redding uh, his, uh, his ghostly fingers uh, on uh, on some. Yeah, of he recorded that song too. So if you got y'all want to, you can go and listen to them side by side. She uh, and her her man went up to Alaska at this time in 1968. Actually, she had just given birth to her baby, Donto. And um, she was actually in the hospital with breathing problems when uh, Alaskan bounty hunters came looking for her. They had been in Alaska and she had skipped bail and come back to the, the continent, let's just say. And uh, after her baby was born, the Alaskan bounty hunters came looking for her and she evaded them for several days, but then she allowed them to take her back to Alaska where she found a steady job at a nightclub and she met another man named Artis Mills who was also a pimp, but he was a nice guy. He was a nice pimp. And uh, he was the man who she married for love and protection and protected her against Billy and all the other mean guys out there. And they got together and returned to LA where she had bought an apartment building, which she called the fort. And uh, another uh, example of Leonard Chess looking out for her was that he had convinced her to put the apartment building in his name so that her mother and Billy, the, her abuser, couldn't take it away from her. And when Leonard just died, she was terrified that because he left no will, that the apartment building was in his name and was going to be taken away by his heirs. But he had arranged with a friend previous to his death to take the deed over to Etta and sign it over to her so she was able to keep her building. So even after death, he was still looking out for her. Nice. Yeah. And so now she's running into a uh, phenomenon um, that she calls White Rock, which was uh, booming in the late 60s. Um, She'd seen Pat Boone copying Fats Domino and Georgia Gibbs copying her first hit in the 50s. But this time the white kids were rebels themselves, not conformists. And she points to The Who, The Beatles uh, at that time. Uh, the Rolling Stones, and then there was Janis Joplin. Oh. She had come to see Etta many years before in Oklahoma. She had seemed like some random white chick fan that idolized her. And years later, while rehearsing a show at the Whiskey, she saw Janis again, sitting in a corner with straggly hair sipping out of a Southern Comfort bottle, looking like an old lady. <laughs> at this time, she was just starting to get famous And afterwards, she would say that Etta was a big role model for her, and Etta was actually proud. She didn't feel like Janice was like the other white folk who appropriated Black music. She heard the electricity and rage in Janice's voice and loved her attitude. Janice paved a road many white chicks hadn't walked down and turned a lot of white folks onto the blues, and she felt a kindred spirit to Janice, almost like Janice was a daughter she never knew. I thought that was very cool. Very sweet. Very sweet. Yeah. 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 And uh, as we know, you know, Janice was a big fan of Otis Redding. 
So it's not surprising. I didn't know that she was uh, just as big a fan of, uh, of Je- Etta James, but that's not, that doesn't surprise me at all. Right. When she sees Etta as a role model, of course, yeah. of course yeah. she does. Yeah. All right. At this time, she, ah, she gets into some more trouble with the law. Her man, her husband gets uh, locked up for 10 years in prison, taking the rap for both of them for drugs. And uh, finally, though, she has legal trouble that sends her to a boot camp kind of rehab in the San Fernando Valley in L.A. And she was 35 at this time. It was one of those brutal in-your-face boot camps uh, approach to to rehab. But it worked for her at the time uh, because it was necessary for hard-headed junkies with heavy powers of manipulation, which is what she felt she was. At uh, the time, she was being able to get out of the rehab because she was there for about two years to continue recording. And she wrote a song called Feeling Uneasy, uh, which was written and recorded during her stay in the rehab and reflected how she was feeling at the time. So let's listen to Feeling Uneasy, which is, I, be- I believe, has actually no lyrics and it's just a, a feeling song. Like a scat? Well, you'll see. It's kind of, yeah. It's not a scat. It's a moan. <laughs> mm. <laughs> a All right. Moan, a Let's get moan. to it. Feeling uneasy. Sounds like where Pink Floyd got uh, the great gig in the sky. <laughs> I mean, same key, uh, same sort of feeling right there. Uh, yeah. Uh, huh. Yeah. Well, Very I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. That was, uh, if she was 35, what year was that? Um, like early 70s, I guess. Probably. Yeah. All right. So uh, as she says, even when she hit an emotional bottom, her singing didn't suffer. And as she says many times through this book, too, uh, at the times when she was heavily using heroin, her singing didn't suffer either. She said, I'm not suggesting it as something people should do to sing, but it's something like her voice was powerful and elastic enough not to have bad effects from this particular drug maybe if it had been a different drug it would have but you know i, was I know a her. lot of drug addicts that say shit like that mm-hmm. right you know. but if you hear the stuff that came i would suggest it for you but uh, you know i can handle it i know it. Yeah, <laughs> i heard i mean even and unless Debbie you're Harrison. fucking keith richards <laughs> the answer is no no don't well obviously it affected other parts of her life so that's why she's in this place 
so at, at the time, I think she was still in the rehab. Jerry Wexler decided that he wanted to produce her and he wanted to produce her so badly that he offered to do it for free. And she flew out to New York um, and she calls him a tyrant. It was his way or the highway. And he had so many opinions about the tracks. He had to pick all the tracks and he even gave uh, advice on the vocals. But she, you know, appreciated his knowledge. Unlike Leonard Chess, he was a scholar, you know, of black music. He knew music. He was more able to direct the performances. But of course, if you're a performer, I suppose that could get on your nerves. Um, they did a, an album together called Etta is Better Than Eva. And Better Than Eva, those both have H's at the end. Etta is Better Than Eva in 1976. I think I said that already. And uh, she covers a lot of uh, rock musicians and composers at that time. But the one she loved especially was Randy Newman. Now, you don't think of Randy Newman as being somebody who would be kind of attractive to Black musicians. But she said he appealed to her because he wrote using the piano and his music was steeped in gospel and blues. And uh, the song that I like from this album, which she liked singing, because she's telling the man what to do. And it's called, You Can Leave Your Hat On. Yeah. I'll, Remember I'll, when he I'll did that? It. Remember when that came out? Uh, well, certainly. Uh, when he know, did it. Yeah, uh, the Joe Cocker version is. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's right, too. That's, that's the, yeah. the big version, I think, out there. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so let's listen to Leave Your Hat On. Yeah, that's a very funky version of yeah. the song. Uh, very cool. Uh, and and I, I, I did do a check on the... Uh, feeling, feeling Uneasy. Feeling Uneasy. And uh, the, her, her version comes out in 74. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon comes out in 73. So maybe oh. she was actually inspired uh, by Great Gig in the Sky. Could be, could be. She does not mention them at all. But luckily it didn't, you know, it's not like it was a, a big hit. So they had no, to sue her no, or anything no, like that. No, 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 that was just her sonic uh, part of a therapy, probably. Right, right. right, right, right <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So who was that on uh, that thing that did the Great King in the Sky? Oh, Claire Torrey. Claire, Claire Torrey did uh, the vocal on Great King in the Sky. Did not know that. So uh, let's see. In 1978, she ended her relationship with Chess after 16 years. Uh, she had recorded many classics with them, but never got the royalties due her. And Wexler still wanted to produce her and got her a deal with Mo Austin at Warner. Mm. Um, 
So she says about Wexler that he still wanted to dominate the artists. And now she's older and more experienced. She says, I'm not sure Jerry realized that he was still very much into dominating the studio vibe and controlling the vocal interpretations. Who with somebody like Aretha and Etta James, that doesn't work. They have their own vocal interpretations. To me, it seems like I can't believe you would tell people like that how to interpret vocally. But anyway, she said the result was a mini war of wills. But she let Jerry win because politics was important and she wanted his help promoting the album, which was called Deep in the Night and uh, included uh, more covers by white rockers like Clapton, Rod Stewart, who she had been listening to while she was in treatment. She'd been listening to a lot of white rock and roll. So the one song that... Uh, I thought people would enjoy hearing right now is her rendition of Peace of My Heart, since we've already talked about Janice, who yeah. is famous for doing yeah. that song. So mm -hmm. I thought it would be fun to listen to how Etta James does that song. All right, let's get to it. Uh, a little Etta James evoking Janice Joplin, uh, a one-time super fan of Etta James, uh, Peace of My Heart. Like you were the only man Didn't I give you everything That a woman possibly can I don't know if I've ever heard that version before. That was cool. Yeah. Different, different, but still, you know, has all the pieces there. Uh, I'd say a little more on the grid uh, than Janice's uh, version. Hers a little more raggedy, but perhaps uh, a little more authentic uh, in uh, in feeling. Although I'm not taking anything away from Etta's vocal performance. Uh, it's just a, a little bit more down the line uh right and and janice's version is so emotional yeah and that's that's my point yeah you know yeah yeah, yeah. So. and painful like yeah. she's in pain yeah, while she's singing it. it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so in the, uh or skipping ahead to the early 80s her career was in the toilet her management yeah. was bad yeah she um, doesn't really have any hits after uh 70 374 i mean yeah even then she's uh she's just in the top 200 she's not even in the top 40 yeah she had to start booking her own gigs uh because she didn't have good management at that time calling clubs pretending she was somebody else you know she pretended she was her own booking agent to get yeah, clubs yeah, yeah. Hmm. and uh we'll feel proud of this san francisco was her only salvation she had lots of fans including a lot of gay and lesbian fans. Uh, she played at a lot of gay bars and lesbian bars like the Stud and and oh, which any just other club. 
just announced it's closing uh, today. I know. Uh, for but they're but supposedly years. going planning to open somewhere else. Uh, I oh. used to go to the stud with my bisexual boyfriend. Oh, it was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, so she says San Francisco was the scene of my rebellion against the world thirty years prior, because that's where she was a teenager, and she was still rebelling, including against the Wexlers and the Alan Toussaints, who have great ears but couldn't give her freedom. So she had these producers that were musicians or highly tuned into music, but were very controlling. And she needed the freedom to, you know, make the records she wanted to make and sing the way she wanted to sing. And she thought their results were a little bit too slick. In the San Francisco clubs, in the shows, they let her rip. She could just really be herself. And uh, she recorded a live album at the boarding house on Columbus. Her voice was stronger than ever. And she was broke, but determined to make an album with money that she raised and services that were donated to her for the album, which is called Etta James Live from San Francisco, which was finally released 14 years later. Now, there's a lot of good songs on this album, but the one uh, that got stuck with me in my brain was her version of Take It to the Limit. Now, you wouldn't think that would be... song? Yeah. And you wouldn't think that would be really appropriate for her. But um, the part I want to play is the part that goes into the chorus because they do it in such a wonderful gospel way that I I would have never thought of. And um, the ending is really cool, too. They have this whole call and response gospel style on it. But Mm -hmm. uh, let's play part of it that um, starts like right before the chorus so we can hear the full chorus. Okay. okay. Take it to the limit by well, sung by Etta James. You know I'm always version of shame doesn't it yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean holy it, shit. And the other the other singers she has with her there are amazing too when you yeah. hear the the little duet going on i mean she's got high grade gospel singers with with her in the backup chorus there so yeah i, yeah. I wonder what randy meisner thought when the first time he heard that uh, what am i gonna do now 
Yeah. <laughs> we can't play that in concert anymore. Yeah. Yeah. She had some, you know, uptick in her career after that. She uh, she got to sing at the L.A. Olympics in 1984. The Saints go marching in, which was thrilling and the biggest audience of any event in the history of, of events. And it really brought her back more into the, you know, limelight again. She put her uh, in a more recognizable place. But the interesting thing is that in the mid-80s, the blues hit huge across this country, that all kinds of blues were very popular, and the white world was going blues crazy. She credits Stevie Ray Vaughan, the baddest of all the young white boys, with part of this blues revival. He had the real feeling and no-nonsense pain of a blues great. Etta had sung rock, soul, R&B, jazz, but now she was seen as a traditional blues singer like Muddy Waters. She didn't want to be pigeonholed, but she needed the money. As a headline, the blues festivals brought bigger bucks. So she went on the blues circuit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She needs money. Now, luckily, in uh, 86, MCA bought Chess, uh, records and started going after pirates and regaining ownerships and paying out royalties. So she started actually getting some royalties from her previous records, which was very good for her and her yes. portfolio. That was important. She start, you know, she moved to the suburbs to raise her family. Um, starts getting more recognition in the music business. Um, including the Grammys, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the NCAA Image Award. And she continues to get, you know, more awards in the latter part of her life that are not covered by this book. Uh, Wexler produced another uh, album for her in Muscle Shoals in 1982. And she sang with uh, Steve Winwood on one of the songs on that album and she calls him a gentleman and soul man and oh. the one uh song that made it on the album is give it up which was written by alan toussaint and jerry was still controlling her and they fought more like a father and daughter during this session than any other so she kind of accepts jerry in his controlling ways but uh you know fights to to give the rendition that she wants to give. So let's listen to Give It Up, which is All written right. by Alan Toussaint. Here it is. Give it up. Give it up. Give it up. You know what's on my mind. Stevie Winwood makes a second appearance in our show today. You know, That's I right. Mentioned yeah. that he had uh, done a uh, you know one of the quarantine videos. Uh, right. Give me some love in this morning. And put oh, all kinds of coincidences on this podcast, and he's not. It's not even related to uh, AdamandEve.com. 
Are you sure it's not related to adamandeve.com? I mean, it not yet, but I do love Stevie Winwood. I mean, yeah, I believe he <laughs> has used the code R O C K L I B. He better. Yeah. <laughs> but that yeah. was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Etta and Steve Winwood duet. Uh, that's very awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're nearing the end of the book. You know, as you know, it ends in uh, 1995. Um, Dorothy, her mother, finally came to see her sing in the, I guess, in the 80s or the 90s. No, I guess it was the 90s and cried during the performance and said to Etta, you know, darling, you're fantastic. You really are. I don't know why it took her so long to go see her daughter perform. Well, whatever. She came around. I know, I know, I know something about that. About what? Oh, mothers uh, not really being interested in your artistic pursuits. And, oh, I see. And so yeah, later yeah. on. And then they're like, oh, gosh. Hmm. Especially sure. when you don't play the kind of music they like. Oh, well, that's, so, that's what it all comes So, uh, yeah, but she rectified that. Um, she did her first all jazz album in 1993 called The Mystery Lady and dedicated it to her mother, Dorothy, oh. because oh. Billie Holiday was. Yeah, one I was going to say songs of Billie Holiday, right? Yeah, that's right. And mm -hmm. Dorothy was so into Billie Holiday. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, she was a major musical figure in, in Dorothy's life. And uh, Etta says she was actually scared to do the album because jazz is so much more exacting to sing than the blues or R&B. I know what she means by that because I don't sing that kind of song either because you have to, your placement and your, your phrasing and um, all the technique of being a singer is so important in jazz. Mm -hmm. So... Um, all these songs seem to carry a personal meaning for Etta while she was uh, recording them. And the album won her first Grammy for Best Jazz Vocal. The mystery lady in the title of the album is her mom, uh, Billie Holiday, and herself, Etta James, who are all fragile but strong women. So that's why she called it The Mystery Lady. Um, the Man I Love, one of the songs on the album, which is a pure Billie Holiday song, a longing song by a, a woman who is in pain, but who survives. And, and to Billie, this exemplifies Billie's life, Dorothy's life, and also Etta's life. So let's listen to The Man I Love. All right. The Man I Love. Someday he'll come along The man I love And he'll be big and strong The man I love And when he comes my way I'll do my best to make him stay He'll look at me well, that was a nice way to get to the end of this story of Etta James through songs, uh, or Etta James songs. Uh, yes. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. What, well, um, is this, this isn't the first time we've read a book um, from a couple of decades ago, right? 
Well, no, the Doors book was. Oh, yeah. that's right. That, yeah. yeah, the Jim book is that's yeah, that's really old. Yeah, um, I think there were a couple others, but uh, oh, yeah. that one uh, by uh, the Beatles producer George Martin. Oh, yeah, had been yeah, about yeah. Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, um, yeah. So this book ends when she's 56 and she died in her early 70s. And she yeah, says at age 56, yeah. she's still raging, still raunchy in performance and feels like the devil gets into her when she's performing. She plays the slut and she wants to scandalize the squares, but she still feels the humiliation of being fat. This is the thing that followed her through her life, that she was heavy and she yo-yoed back and forth depending on, you know, her heroin use and stuff like that. And so she feels like that when she jokes around being sexy on stage, that's her protection against people who are possibly ridiculing her for the way she looks. I thought that was an interesting um, take on that. Yeah. Um, and then, and in the ensuing years, the two next decades, she recorded more albums. She um, won a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, she won a Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album. The uh, awards and yeah, recognition she, uh, keep coming in. Yeah, she's been nominated uh, like. 15 times uh mm-hmm. she won three times uh that's that's a pretty nice record there yeah yeah and, and like, of course uh, you know her legend just grew as time went on um and uh you know uh i think um uh more and more people have gone back and found just how incredibly uh, important she was to the history of, of uh, the music of the late 20th century and um, what a vocal performer uh, she really was that, you know, very few female artists got to, to that top of the mountain. Yeah. And, and she's been a, a role model for many blues yeah. singers of mm-hmm. black and white of yeah. like, I want what she has. Let me see yeah. if I can pull that up out of myself. But, you know, yeah, of course, she right. lived it. Yeah. So she she recorded her last album about a year before she died of leukemia. Before she was diagnosed with leukemia, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So she had yeah. a, a difficult last few years of her life, yeah. but mm-hmm. went out with honors. And um, we were going to play a couple of songs to end it or a song to end this that shows just how much she found her has found her way into the current popular music scene. Right. Yeah, But before we get there, obviously you'd recommend the book. Uh, oh yeah. People should go out and, and see that. And we hope we've given a lot of people a, a taste of, of Etta's uh, deeper catalog and That's right. to, uh, to go and uh, grab those songs uh, and put that in your own uh, playlist and catalog out there. Yeah. So- There's so many more, uh, amazing stories. I mean, it's a roller coaster ride reading the book and the yeah, people that yeah. she hung out with, the musicians she knew and were friends and her her drugs and, um, you know, legal problems. Uh, if you're not taking notes while you read it, it's going to be a fast read for you and very interesting. Unlike you who takes notes while you read it. So. I know. Uh, 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 so, okay. All right. So before we go, uh, what do we have on tap? What's next? We have um, Kathy Valentine's memoir, oh. 
Oh, Joe now goes. I've forgotten the title of it, though. Um, but I have it already. I'm going to start mm-hmm. giving it a read. I've been following her on social media. She's out doing kind of book tours, you know, remote book tours. For Yeah, the yeah. Yeah, we might oh, uh, even get her on uh, on our Deeper Digs uh, show to to talk about it. So all I ever wanted, yeah, all I ever wanted by Kathy yeah. Valentine. Yeah, and as you may know, her bandmate Belinda Carlisle just uh, showed up on our new show, uh, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. Uh, Belinda and Pleasant are old old friends, roommates, and did crazy shit back in the day uh if you get a chance go listen to that podcast the devil's music so all right well we look forward to getting back uh with you uh soon i don't hopefully the next one won't be remote but it may still be remote depending on how things go but um it was great learning about uh i i think i kind of had a little bit of a blind spot with etta james that you've helped uh uh clear up for me so i appreciate it was my honor my honor yeah. And so, you know, yeah, let's let's leave with just, you know, how uh, important she uh, has become uh, even to modern music. And in 2012, the same year that she uh, passed on, uh, Florida uh, used um, her vocal. He actually built a song uh, from Avicii, a, a Swedish DJ uh, who had a song called Levels that he used, <laughs> you know, the pieces of something's got a hold on me. And and then Florida took that and then put the the uh, Etta vocals back in and made that a centerpiece of the whole thing uh, for a song called Good Feeling. So let's let's send you out with uh, with Florida's 2012 monster hit with Etta James, Good Feeling. and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. Old quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology.